0: Welcome to the future of education. And now here's your host, Michael Horn. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the future of education, where we are obsessed with helping all individuals build their passions and fulfill their human potential. And today we get to talk to someone who is helping do just that. She's Diana Diaz-Harrison, founder and CEO of Arizona Autism Charter Schools, which won this year's YAS Prize, which awards $1 million to the country's education provider that best exemplifies what they call the STOP principles. That stands for sustainable, transformational, outstanding, and permissionless. Diana, first, welcome. Uh, Congratulations on winning the YAS Prize. There were I mean, frankly, many inspirational and incredible educators competing this year. Many of them won awards. You won the top prize. I I happen to be a judge, actually, in one of the rounds and uh, got to read your application. I was just blown away and so excited by what you have created and the vision. And we'll get to the prize and more toward the end of our conversation. But I just want to start with, you know, grounding our audience uh, at a high level with what are the Arizona Autism uh, Charter Schools?
1: So we are an autism-focused charter school. So we implement best practices for children with autism. And we are the first and only autism-focused charter network in the state and in the Southwest. So we feel that what we do is very unique in kind of marrying best clinical practices for kids with autism, along with best instructional and educational practices. Uh, So the best of both worlds in a school setting for kids with autism.
0: Very neat. So tell us, we're going to get more into the instructional model and unpack all that, but go back a little bit. Tell us the founding story. What was that problem that you experienced that led you to say, we need to create something that does not exist?
1: Yes. So I am an autism mom. Um, I have my son, Sammy, who is 20 years old and in our transition academy now. But when he was uh, little and we found out that he had an autism diagnosis, we immersed ourselves in best clinical practices to get him up to speed on all of those foundational skills like communication, shaping behavior, and just more social interaction, tolerating sensory differences and the like. Um, and luckily here in Phoenix, there are wonderful early intervention programs that are a model for other states. Um, but sadly, when he became school age, all of the work that we had done in early intervention wasn't wasn't available or to be continued when the rest of his next chapter came to be, you know, kindergarten and then K twelve schools. Um, all of the great work that I learned about in, in clinical practice was just not a part of his school. Year. Um, so it became very challenging to you know watch him regress and um, just kind of go through school and go to school but not becoming his best self (laughs) during school, which is what school is supposed to do. Um, So, you know, I I was one of those moms that advocated heavily for, um, you know, bringing uh, the embedded supports that he needed. But I quickly realized that I just didn't want to be that mom that was fighting all the time and then have these forced situations and then feeling like people were doing me a favor when there were more and more kids with autism coming up in school, and you know, we parents just had to settle, oh, or you know, pay forty to fifty thousand a year for private schools. So I knew there had to be a better way, and luckily, I did learn um, about other autism charters in the country. Florida was a, Florida was a wonderful state to look at as a model, and um, I pitched the idea to people in Arizona, but. Um, You know, special education comes with a lot of, um, you know, litigiousness around it and there were no takers. So after a while of knocking on doors, I realized that if I really wanted this to happen, I would have to be the one to do.
0: Wow. And so all of a sudden you're an education entrepreneur, you and I think, I mean, it makes sense. I, I We had a, a former school head for our kids who used to say, we get the best and you get the rest. It sounds like that was the opposite of what you were having uh, for your son, Sammy. I'm I'm curious, like you build this model. And as I understand, you've used applied behavioral analysis sort of on the clinical side. And then you're really deeply personalizing the learning itself. W- what does that look like for students in, in your schools?
1: What's really great about our school is that when people come and tour and see what we're doing with the kids, they'll tell me this looks more like a program for gifted kids. You know, there's so much um, theme, project based learning. Um, we've adopted the WazEd curriculum, which is developed by Steve Wozniak, which is typically, you know, those uh, kinds of innovative programs are reserved for the highly gifted kids. But at our school, we really see all the kids as gifted in their own way. You know, we really celebrate their neurodiversity. Obviously, um, these, uh, these uh, autism and other special needs come with challenges, of course, but the neurodiversity is also very much celebrated here and that we allow kids to engage their find foundational skills into projects that are of high interest to them. Um, so, We uh, developed a model that really addresses the needs of the entire spectrum because it is um, a spectrum um, condition that uh, manifests in many different ways. You know, you could have kids that have intensive needs and need a functional form of communication because they're nonverbal, you know, to very verbal kids who have uh, a peak skill, say in text or math, um, but need more support with language. Um, so the class sizes are very small. Um, we have an average three to one student to staff ratio across the board. And that really helps make the program um, more personalized for, for each student that is a part of our community.
0: That's amazing. So the three to one uh, student to staff ratio, like how do you afford that? Because Arizona is not known for high per pupil funding per se. What, what goes into supporting a model like that so you can provide that kind of personalization
1: well, I think the main uh, the main thing that happens is that the resources that do come from the state and federal funding go into the classroom versus top-heavy special ed departments. You know that hire a lot of extraneous um, legal staff or you know others. Um, our executive team is super small, <laughs> and um, and all of the funding goes into the classroom. And I think. That, that's a choice. You know, anybody can make that choice, but very few schools do. Um, I think the other area is all the uh, private grants and fundraising that are a core part of my job, telling our story and convincing um, grant funders to invest in our kids uh, because they can do great things if given the opportunity in our model. So both of those things, I think, make a huge difference in putting the resources where the kids are.
0: No, that makes a ton of sense, and I think that focus on the classroom spend as opposed to the administration uh, is something other schools would do well uh to model sometimes when you see these big price tags on the East Coast where I am, you sort of say "Where are all the money where's all the money going and it's sadly not into the classroom in many cases um I'm curious you talk about on on the website and in, in in sort of the about you know what you do that Every student at every single grade level and ability level is going to make progress in your model. You're you're realizing the high state standards. You've talked about it here. It doesn't look like a program for special ed students. It looks like a program for gifted students. This is a school, frankly, that has high expectations for for its students. It's clear. What are the outcomes? What do you see from the students every day? We
1: really measure and celebrate engagement. So, you know, with our students, oftentimes, um, especially highly impacted students, you know, if they're kind of um, there and not causing any trouble, you know, they can really slide by with doing the minimal. And, you know, people that are in charge of the kids can also get by with doing the minimal. But we have high engagement expectations for our, you know, students and staff that are measurable. We've got a lot of data-driven instructions. We check our data very frequently. We have the kids see the owners of their data as well so that, you know, it's not an external towards uh, watching their growth. It's themselves. Um, and then, you know, we have a lot of uh, a very competitive spirit in, at our school um, that is healthy, I think, because um, our students, Uh, If given the opportunity, do love to compete. You know, one example is our great Special Olympics program and tournaments, and our kids are coming back with birthplace medals. Um, Internally, we we like to post our data, celebrate our data, and also come together as a community for students who need help in any area. Um, And part of the learning that takes place here is being okay with asking for help. Learning how to advocate for yourself if you need um, support in different areas and celebrating that as well. Um, so it's all about what the kids can do and kind of reframing how they feel about themselves. Yes, they have learning differences, but that is not what's going to define them. It's you know their latest research, their latest uh, group-based project, or how they help somebody else in the community that really defines. Them and so now kids, you know, will come and say to me, Miss Diana, autism is my superpower. Look at what I figured out. And that's exactly what we want. um, What we want them to feel here.
0: I love that asset-based framing. I suspect the parents also love that asset-based framing. Dig into the personalization a little bit more, because it sounds like you have a real model of empowerment uh, where the students, as you said, are owning their data. It sounds like they're setting goals. How does technology play into that learning? How does the projects work? What what does that look like in the the mixing of those different elements?
1: Yeah, so I think it starts by um, having a menu of assessments that is developmentally appropriate for each student. So we don't just have one assessment and then everybody has to fit into that. That doesn't work for our kids. Um, We have, research-based assessments that are proven to deliver best outcomes for autism, and we use those uh, for students who don't have intellectual disability. We use more standardized assessments. Um, but, you know, having just one assessment that is the state-based assessment for all kids is, is really detrimental for kids who can't access that. Um, and so then you end up measuring nothing <laughs> because the, the test is not appropriate for them. Um, so it starts by, you know, really doing a deep evaluation of each child and putting them in the right assessments. Evaluating, evaluating the the efficiency of the strategies used to help them grow, and then helping them own their data. Another exciting thing about our school is that we have student digital portfolios, so parents are seeing the students' data in real time and can see. Uh, data, work samples, videos of projects, kind of a nice, well-rounded portfolio base, which is um, light years ahead of most FED programs because uh, you know, kids that have special needs typically have an IEP that gets reviewed annually. And oftentimes parents will go to that meeting and find out after a year that their kid made minimal progress. Um, so that just, parents feel like they're in the dark. Um, you know, really if there are skill um, acquisition issues, they should know earlier so that they can help be part of the team that, you know, figures out a solution. Um, so we really love the data transparency at our schools or our digital portfolios. And, um, and it really is game changing for parents who are often told over and over what their kids can't do. Their kid's disability is this, that, and the other. You know, yes, we address that as well. But from there, it's all about what the kids learn and do.
0: That's awesome. And so then uh, I'm, I, it sounded like you all have an online school as well, if I'm not mistaken. So this is not just a brick and mortar uh, school experience. What, what does that look like?
1: Yes. So we did uh, dive into virtual programming when, we, when everybody had to during COVID. And the way we ran our online school, which was not part of the original, (laughs) plan, but, um, you know, we didn't hesitate to pivot. Um, We really took cues from telehealth, teletherapy, and uh, and developed a a protocol called TeleLessons, where it was still very much small group or even one-on-one so that we could still uh, run drills and get data on the kids. Um, We still did our project-based showcases, even though they could work online and in-person, and there was a variety of um, modalities. Um, But um, back to our project-based learning, every quarter they could collaborate to develop a project with peers, which is huge. And they presented either in-person or virtually if they're in the online school. Our online program had so much success that we decided to keep it as part of the menu of options for families. And yeah, more than 100 families have selected that. Um, now we've spiraled into a hybrid model as well That's um, you know, one of the menu options. And so it's all about just giving parents choice who typically don't have a lot of choice.
0: Wow. So, I mean, that's powerful. And so it sounds like, I mean, students have a lot of choice at the classroom level the parents are having choice of different models here just take us one more step into the into the learning experience student shows up we're not it sounds like we're not talking about block periods or a seven period day or something like that it sounds like they're really deep with a, a you know fellow teacher with fellow peers figuring out which projects they're working on which content they're going to learn and it's much more self-driven is there, what's the rhythm, if you will, of the day? How, how, how do you use time?
1: So in our um, K-5 program, um, the kiddos are in a group of about eight 10 kids. Um, they have a lead teacher and support staff. And then they go through, you know, their regular daily schedule that is very much visually driven. There's uh, visual schedules all over. And that's as they work through their day, students are kind of Um, marking, you know, what they have completed and then moving on to a different station. It's a three-station rotation model, which helps keep uh, the teaching and learning small, three kids to a staff member, and um, rotations throughout the day. And it really helps students, you know, not have to be seated in one spot, you know, for, you know, several hours a day. They're moving about and navigating an instructional program that in large part is is self-driven. Um, so that they can apply their skills into uh, ideas and creativity that is of importance to them. And, you know, kids on the spectrum have very defined interests. Um, So this really helps uh, leverage, you know, uh, learning foundational skills and then as a reward, applying it to their preferred project.
0: Gotcha. Super interesting. Okay, so let's pivot now. You win the YAS Prize a few months ago. $1 $1 million, what are you going to use the funds for? You already have several schools up and running. I think you're serving something like 700, 800 students at the moment. Uh, what's next on the horizon?
1: So, we're really excited excited to be adding a campus in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, we're using the Yaz Pride funds to um, continue to um, have more and more project based learning through waz We're thrilled about this partnership because the co-founder of Apple developed these awesome team and project-based kits um, that include everything from coding, robotics, drone flying, with the culminating activity of getting an FAA license, for example, you know, very cool stuff. Um, and so we are going to expand our theme programming um, across all our sites and including for our online students. Um, and that's a very um, exciting, that we're having internally. And then the other uh, portion of the prize is going to be used to develop a national accelerator of autism charter schools. Um, I know firsthand how hard it is not to have a viable school choice for my child with autism. Um, and we know there are only um, a few autism-focused charter school tuition free around the nation. Um, so, uh, part of the prize will be used to accelerate the creation and the founding of nonprofit tuition-free autism charters in other states.
0: That's powerful. So, and it goes to the next question I'm want to ask, and I'm curious, frankly, if you agree with the statement I'm about to make, which is, it feels like right now there's a movement of entrepreneurs in education that feels much bigger than it was when you got started, say, in 2016. I think it was. And I'm curious, quickly, I guess, does that feel right to you, that we're in this moment of time right now where there's a lot of education entrepreneurship going on?
1: Absolutely. Um, There are charter schools, there are more niche specialty charter schools, which we're excited about, and then all of the micro schools that are emerging um, and ESA scholarships that are available are are great uh, for education, options, innovation, and choice. Um, We've seen a little bit of a pendulum swing here in Arizona, and we're watching because we think the more choice, the better. You know, it's hard enough to um, navigate, you know, the the school setting with uh, with a child with special needs. Um, You know, having limited choices or just one choice is insufficient and outdated. (laughs) And you know, now that parents have experienced choice, you know, they don't want to give that up. Um, so we are very protective, you know, of, uh, you know, the ability to start charters if that's what a founding wants to do, or to start uh, private or micro schools that benefit from the funding, funding, uh, because, you know, we we shouldn't be limited by, prescribed, you know, by a district program.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And obviously, we're all watching Arizona right now to see what happens. But I guess as you turn and you're supporting these entrepreneurs in, in starting, you know, autism-based programs specifically, but more generally as well, what, what are the lessons from your own experience that you would offer or teach these entrepreneurs as they jump into this world?
1: Um, I think it's very uh, important to know that it's very consuming work. Um you know, starting a school is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> um, so you really have to go into it knowing that you know you're starting a business and many businesses don't make it in the first few years because of all of the barriers that come into play. Um, but if you have a committed founding board that's willing to uh, help navigate all kinds of obstacles and a leader with a purpose first and foremost, and you know you're doing this because you're going to do it no matter what it takes, then, you know, that that is the level of commitment that's required for something like this. Um, but once, you know, you, you get all of those pivotal processes in place, um, the reward, uh, you know, that you get from serving kids who otherwise wouldn't have a quality option is really priceless. And then to see those kids flourish into, you know, high school students that are starting entrepreneurial endeavors and, you know, making friends for the first time and presenting a project to their parents, you know, who previously, you know, they thought they wouldn't be able to present anything um, is really game changing. And I think it's really changing the narrative um, about what it is to be a person with autism and how that doesn't need to have all the limitations that have been previously associated with it.
0: It's powerful stuff. So, last question as we wrap up here, what which is: What are the lessons that maybe your experience holds for us as a nation? You know, not just for the education entrepreneurs, but for educators, parents, policymakers, and society more broadly.
1: I would say we should not lower the bar. Um, you know, we should not just make do because of you know whatever the the talent pipeline or. um Resources shift up and down. Um, I think keeping the bar high for our kids, we should be unapologetic about that uh, because the kids deserve you know, everything that is the most fruitful and exceptional and exciting at school. Um, so we fight hard to keep the bar high and to troubleshoot any barriers that in the way of that. Um, but, I think what's going to bring America back is, you know, not lowering the bar for kids and fighting to keep it high no matter what.
0: Terrific stuff. Diana, congratulations again. More importantly, congrats for what you're doing for students, not just in Arizona, but increasingly across the country. Really appreciate the work you're doing.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for the support and helping us share our story.
0: Yeah, you bet. And we'll be back next time on The Future of Education.